Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, an historic breakthrough or a huge missed opportunity to save the planet will bring you the experts' opinion on the COP28 climate summit. It's time to transition away from fossil fuels. That was the final agreement at the end of the COP28 climate change gathering in Dubai. We have confronted realities and we have set the world in the right di direction. We have given it a robust action plan to keep 1.5 within reach. It is a plan that is led by the science. It is a balanced plan that tackles emissions, bridges the gap on adaptation, reimagines global finance, and delivers on loss and damage. Enhanced, balanced, but make no mistake, historic package to accelerate climate action. It is the UAE consensus. The agreement is only as good as its implementation. We are what we do, not what we say. We must take the steps necessary to turn this agreement into tangible actions. If we unite in action, we can have a profoundly positive effect on all our futures. Historic, certainly, as it's the first time a COP meeting has agreed to move away from oil and gas. And yet, many are already criticising this COP, saying the deal doesn't go anywhere near far enough. With me now is Adair Turner, the chair of the Energy Transitions Commission. What was needed from COP28, according to the UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres, was an ambitious outcome with a credible plan. Did we get that? Well, I think we inched forward, and let's be clear, this COP process has to get unanimous agreement from 190 nations. That is a very difficult thing to do, and it, you're never going to get absolute clarity if you're trying to get every single one of that number uh, to agree to something with a veto. So is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. But it is a major step forward, because for the first time, there is an acceptance that to deal with the problem of climate change, we do have to transition our energy systems away from fossil fuels. I mean, that may seem so obvious that, uh, you know, why does it even need saying? But there has been opposition in the past. The opposition comes from oil and gas producing uh, countries which say, no, we can go on producing oil and gas forever and we'll just offset it with uh, carbon capture and storage or removals. This statement says, no, that's not true. We are going to have to move away from fossil fuels. So that is a step forward. I think the crucial step that we now need to take on the basis of that is to be clear about how rapid that mm -hmm. transition away needs to be. And at the Energy Transition Commission, we believe that it needs to involve something like a 70% reduction in gas use by 2050, and 85% 85 reduction in coal, and an about 90% reduction in oil, and that those are credible. But this gives us the basis to get beyond the question in principle and say, OK, yes, we know we've got to transition away. How fast is that going to be? But many island nations, it's just not what, what they wanted. Let me just quote one delegate from you, John, John Silk, a minister from the Marshall Islands, who said 
of the agreement. I came here to build a canoe together for my country. We've built a canoe with a weak and leaky hull full of holes. Yet we've had to put it in the water because we've no other option. Is he right? Well, look, I think from their point of view, they, they are right. These are the countries which are absolutely you know, threatened in their very existence by global warming, the ones that really need us to limit it to 1.5 degrees centigrade. And let's be clear, the chance of doing that is, is hanging by a thread. And that's because there's a set of things we should have started doing 10 years ago in all of our countries, in Europe, in the US, in China, that we have left too late. So at one level, I agree with them. On the other hand, I always knew it was going to be difficult to get agreement here. I mean, you know, Saudi Arabia and Russia, you know, have never before agreed that we need to move away uh, from fossil fuels. So at one level, I agree. On the other level, given this need for unanimity, this is not a vote by majority, and it's not something the COP28, the president of the COP, can simply say, this is what I want, therefore it's agreed. They've got to try and get unanimity. So is it enough? No, it's not enough, but it is a step forward, and we've got to build on it, and we've got to develop the technologies as fast as we possibly can to get that fossil fuel use down rapidly. And that will at least limit the overshoot of temperature above this crucial 1.5 degree limit. The agreement recognised that emissions uh, will peak in the not too distant future, but said that the date of that's going to depend, um, will be different depending on if you are a developed country or a developing country. How important do you think that is for somewhere, somewhere like China, still a developing nation, albeit an extremely industrialised one? Well, China is sort of a developing nation, but let's be clear, China's in a completely different situation from Indonesia or India, let alone sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, I'm a great admirer of what China has done, and China is, as its official targets suggest, well en route by 2035 to be a, a successful upper-middle-income country. So we do have to start treating China as not really like a developing country like others. Here's what we need to achieve. Countries like my own in the UK are already on a rapidly declining path of emissions, and we need to get there soon. China has committed to peak emissions before 2030, but ideally that needs to be several years earlier. And I actually, when I look at the Chinese figures of what you're achieving in the road transport system, the rollout of renewables, my guess is that you will peak your emissions in about 2026. But the crucial issue then will be how fast do you come down. Countries like India or Indonesia may not peak emissions till the middle of the 2030s, but then need to come down. So it is differentiated. Um, China is hugely important to point, of course. China is over 25%, almost 30% of all global emissions, and now has emissions per capita, which are higher than Europe. So China, we can't overstate the importance of China, and China needs to take the extraordinary progress that it is making in solar PV and wind rollout and electric vehicle rollout and, and accelerate that even faster. Well, perhaps the least controversial thing to come out of um, COP28 was the commitment from more than half of the countries to scale up renewable energy. For that to be meaningful, the rich countries need to provide the financial and technical support to everyone else. Does the text reflect the urgency there? 
Well, that is crucially important. I mean, of this tripling of renewables, let's be clear, the country which is most likely to meet it is China, given the pace of renewables rollout. And I think China and Europe and the US need to be providing the finance to the lower income countries. That entails, for instance, really, really greening uh, the Belt and Road uh, investments, joining together in the role of development banks, whether they be uh, the World Bank, whether they be the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank or the Asia uh, Development Bank or the China uh, Development Bank. Uh, all of these countries uh, and multilateral institutions need to be helping the finance flows, for instance, to sub-Saharan Africa. And of course, the technology flows. But let's be clear, what, what does technology flow mean? At one level, it is occurring naturally because you and China have developed through your great solar PV uh, manufacturing plants the ability to provide cheap solar panels. And that is technology transfer at, at, at work. And we need to continue that. But we do need, particularly in lower income countries, flows of finance to enable them to buy those and to install those. While we're talking about China, China's special envoy on climate change said the transition will be painful. What do you see as the pressure points that might have been glossed over a little bit at COP. That's interesting. I mean, the, the, the China uh, chief minister envoy, uh, Minister Jia Shenhua, uh, whom I know and greatly uh, uh, admire, uh, I think is very realistic about what we can uh, achieve. I'm not sure what he was referring to in relation to painful, because there are many areas of our economy where I don't think there will be pain. Uh, I think, you know, the rollout of electric vehicles um, in passenger cars, in buses, in two-wheelers, um, I don't think is painful. I, I think increasingly these are cheap enough that they're cheaper than internal combustion engines, and they also deliver us the huge benefit of better air quality. I mean, I was recently in Shanghai and, you know, observing a city which is already approaching 50% of all cars on the road are electric vehicles. And you're just aware of how much nicer a place it is to be uh, as a result. And that's why, for instance, India, uh, Delhi uh, is now saying it is going to try and drive the progress of a, uh, a, a electrifying its road transport, uh, you know, in order to clean up, you know, a, a local air quality, which is absolutely terrible. There are some areas where there is a bit of an economic cost to get there. Uh, I think if we are to decarbonize air transport, we all will have to accept that we have to pay more uh, for aviation uh, flight tickets because uh, we cannot, we know how to make what's called sustainable aviation fuel, but it will be a bit more expensive than the um, you know the conventional jet fuel that we uh, use at the moment. But on the whole, I wouldn't say this is a painful transition. I think on the whole, this will be, once we've done it, the cost will be very small and there will be a whole set of other benefits to uh, local air quality in particular, uh, which once we've done this transition, we'll probably look, well, our children and our grandchildren will look back at people like me and you know pity us for the fact that we had to put up with cities with these, you know, belching, noisy things called internal combustion engines. How significant do you think it is that this first COP to point towards the end of fossil fuels took place in the UAE? And, and where would you like to see the, the discussion going next? Bearing in mind that the next COP, COP29, is going to be in Azerbaijan, another country heavily reliant on the oil and gas trade. 
Well, I would say I, I would congratulate the president of COP, Sultan al-Jaba, and his team, uh, because there was a lot of doubt uh, about whether they would be willing uh, to push this moving beyond fossil fuel. And indeed, they proposed you know, even stronger text on this than they were able to get through on a unanimous basis. So I think they have, you know, and I think we all have to congratulate them on that. And I think it is useful, actually, that this has been agreed by a petro state, a, a major producer, because it sort of says, well, if even they admit and, you know, embrace the fact that we have got to move beyond fossil fuels, hopefully that will create a strong consensus that that is the case. Where does it move on to? I think we have to move on to, and I mentioned it earlier, this point of view of we've, we've debated the words in general terms. Is it phase down? Is it phase out? Is it transition beyond? There isn't much more value in playing around with the words. We now need to move on to figures. We need to say how rapidly can we and should we get rid of the different fossil fuels. We believe that by 2050, you could almost get completely rid of oil. You can get it out of the transport sector almost entirely. We'll end up using oil only to make <coughs> petrochemicals. I think coal, coal is the really crucial one. We have to dramatically uh, reduce the use of coal in power systems. So one thing I would like to see in the next three COPs in Baku and Azerbaijan, uh, in Brazil, and then in Australia, is taking what are called the national determined contributions, which individual nations put forward, and encouraging and ideally requiring that nations be more specific about what they're going to do by sector, by category, by greenhouse gas. And there is actually within the text, an interesting phrase which encourages uh, a, a countries to get more specific. One of the problems with the NDCs, as they called at the moment, is they vary hugely in format and specificity. We've got a whole load of countries which have signed up, for instance, to doubling the pace of energy efficiency improvement. Well, you can only do that if you speed up the move of our road transport systems from internal combustion engines to electric engines. So we've got to see those NDCs now including specific policies. What are you going to do to build charging infrastructure, to tax fossil fuels, to subsidize EVs at the initial stage, which are going to make a reality of that. We've got to get granular now. Adair Turner, thank you very much. Thank you. Still to come here on the agenda. Does this COP prove big business is finally on board with sustainability? We'll hear from the Director General of the International Chambers of Commerce. Welcome back to the agenda. Any COP gathering gives the world's businesses a unique opportunity to get on board with the green agenda. The business presence in Dubai over the course of the meeting has been the largest of any COP. And one of the many who attended is John Denton, Secretary General of the International Chambers of Commerce, which represents more than 45 million businesses in 170 countries. He joins me now from Paris. Thanks for coming on the agenda. Now, big business was represented at, at COP28 like never before, wasn't it? I mean, would you say that climate change is finally something that businesses are paying attention to? Well, um, i got to tell you, all businesses were in... Uh... Dubai and at scale, uh, 
one of the roles of uh, my organization, the International Chamber of Commerce, is to crowd in the private sector uh, to support uh, effective dialogue uh, with the through the UNFCCC processes to enable more, I think, understanding of what needs to be done by governments from the point of view of business. And so we bring in large, small, uh, medium-sized startups, uh, entrepreneurial players, individuals, the whole lot. And so, yeah, there was a, a hell of a lot of businesses at COP, but this was the largest COP ever. And so you would expect that. Uh, from my perspective, um, one point that needs to be clearly understood by your viewers is that business as a whole uh, is actually ahead of government. And one of the issues we find is that getting governments to understand that uh, what is needed for business to do even more requires them to come to some clear agreements, but also to continue to send some constant political signals that we are in maintaining our commitment to delivering on the Paris Agreement. Uh, and that's something I think we're able to achieve this time around. There was a bit more wavering, frankly, at Sharm el-Sheikh, but the size of the business interest is not new. Uh, the dimension is actually constantly growing, uh, but the impetus and also the imperatives are pretty constant. We want a clear framework which will ensure that the world transitions to the outcome sought in the Paris Agreement. And uh, I think uh, COP28, by, uh, supported by the business community at large, uh, was relatively successful in that regard. So the business community wants that framework, but do you think maybe there were too many oil and gas firms there maybe deflecting attention away from climate action? Well, if they were deflecting away, I think that um, that was not the result. In fact, you've got a very positive set of signals from the COP28 leadership, uh, and in fact, from business more broadly, uh, that uh, we want to continue, we want clearer frameworks, we actually want to enable the investment pathways and tranches to support action on net zero. Yeah, the oil and gas community is not homogenous. There's high ambition and lower ambition. Uh, the combination of the high ambition uh, and the high ambition of the voices of the real economy, I think, supported a really strong, a much stronger outcome than many had predicted. But talking of oil and gas, I mean, what, what's your take on the, the final agreement, that transition away from oil and gas? Are your members ready? Well, this is a process. Uh, what would have interrupted the ability to be, I suppose, net zero ready is if the COP28 negotiators had failed to come to a unanimous uh, outcome, which continued to provide support for the achievement of the Paris Agreement. I mean, the Paris Agreement, I think, is seen uh, very much as the right approach to delivering on a better environment for the world to continue to operate. Uh, the problem we have with the Paris Agreement is not the essence of it, the fact that governments started too late and are actually going too slow. Uh, what the business community wants is to go faster. You talk about trust, and I, I want to bring up something you said earlier this year, that was that global trade is at a critical juncture on sustainability. Are we really any closer to achieving that after this COP? I went to COP28 with three key kind of organising principles. One was ambition, the other was action, but the third was around alignment. One of the issues that we've identified and we've been working very hard on is to align the various policy frameworks to support more action on, uh, on climate to deliver the Paris outcome. One of those uh, misalignments has been the absence of engagement between the trade pillar and the climate pillar. It's kind of crazy 
but it's taken 30 years, but we've been able, uh, since I took over at the ICC, now to get trade and climate as one on the agenda. Oh, for the first time ever, I launched with uh, Dr. Ngozi from the WTO uh, and also with the UAE minister, who will also be the minister overseeing the global trade talks in Abu Dhabi in, in March, uh, for the first time ever a trade day. And the ridiculousness of this is that something like 40% uh, of emissions come from supply chains, etc. Trade is right in the centre here. Uh, now integrating the two, we were able to align. How can you get action on the circular economy unless you understand that the circular economy operates across more than one jurisdiction, it's many. You need to bring the trade rules up in, in alignment so that you can actually have effective circular economy uh, activity taking place. So we're able to achieve that this year and we've now got trade and climate uh, integrated. There's other areas of alignment that we've been seeking and we're making progress on those as well. You talk about those areas of alignment, but you also um, said that you feel businesses are ahead of governments uh, when it comes to the direction they should be moving in. So what would you like to see from governments? And are there any particular regions that could be doing more faster? Oh, well, I think from a, from a governmental point of view, there's now been a whole bunch of promises made and commitments made in the COP28 uh, communique. Uh, part of that will be to take enhanced uh, plans from what's called these national determined uh, commitments uh, to, uh, to COP2025. Uh, these need to be serious pieces of work. Uh, there needs to be a lot more detail given about, okay, so you're committed to action now and you're committed to this balancing, which we'll see movement on exiting fossil fuel from the energy mix. What are you going to do about it? So there actually needs to be some action here. And to develop proper and established and sustainable NDCs, you're going to have to in engage with the business communities. Too many promises are made without any understanding of how that can be delivered involving the business communities in each of the economies is critical and we stand really willing and able to assist in that regard we're doing it in number but if you're going to raise the ambition in these ndcs to match the ambitious rhetoric that's been provided in the cop 28 outcome you're going to need to engage with the business community because ultimately they'll be providing most of the finance and most of the execution well talking about delivery let's talk about this agreement to triple renewable energy capacity by 2050. It sounds admirable, um, but there wasn't really much detail on things like permits, on grid connection, or on, on leasing. So what are your members going to need to happen if we're going to get there? Well, I mean, this goes back to my previous response. I mean, the NDCs that are going to have to be delivered to execute against the promises made at COP28 are going to need to provide the detail about how this will happen. You know, policymakers in a vacuum cannot do this. They're going to need to engage with the local business communities about what are the, imp what are the impediments, what needs to change, what needs to be better aligned, uh, all these elements. So it is absolutely feasible to uh, have that outcome, that ambitious outcome in renewables. I don't think anyone's denying that. Uh, the reality, though, to deliver that, you're going to have to do, you know, get into the nitty gritty of what needs to change. And that's going to be, that must be part of the NDCs that will come forward over the next two years. Talking of that nitty gritty, there was a good deal of talk about um, corporations investing in cleaner tech. What signals um, to important industries do you think were sent and received? Oh, I, I think the well, two things. First of all, uh, the fact that there was agreement at COP28, and I think the Emiratis should be congratulated on that, uh, provides a very clear signal that the, the, the road that we're all on must lead to net zero. 
the very clear signal comes that there's there will need to be new innovations uh, in order to deliver that. And part of that clear signal is that part of that innovation will come from new tech, new forms of clean tech. Uh, so I think the signals are all there now. Uh, the issue that we still want is to have functioning carbon markets to support a lot of the activity as well, which are market-based. And there's more work that needs to be done. Of all the vectors that were considered and there were positive outcomes, one that is still lagging, lagging is around action on the uh, compliance carbon markets, which was supposed to be delivered through Article 6. And those talks were actually pretty well lingering. So we need clarity on that as well. And in terms of now, the work that you and your members membership are doing as you look ahead to the next COP, um, which is going to take place in Azerbaijan, what would you like to see happening between now and then? Well, as I said, a lot of promises have been made. Uh, we need to see the hard work start on the NDCs. We need to see preparation for the next global stock take. Uh, we'll be putting pressure uh, through the G20 process on Brazil to ensure that uh, we, we don't lose government alignment on this. Uh, we also need to ensure that at a local level uh, that there's much more involvement between policymakers and their aspirations and the business community to ensure things actually get done. John Denton, thank you very much. My pleasure. Great to talk to you. But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all of the Agenda team here in London, goodbye.